but I want you to turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 27. During our recent shutdown, I have used my preaching opportunities to preach several sermons on the providence of God. And uh, this morning, we're going to shift our attention from the earlier part of the series, which had to do with the extent of God's providence and the character of God's providence. We want to look particularly at the special care of God's providence, which is his church. At the end of Isaiah chapter 26, the prophet has been speaking about the devastating judgment that is going to happen to the entire world, and especially the judgment that's going to happen to the near Mideast. And in chapter 26 and verse 20, he says, Come, my people, enter into your chambers, and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. And then in chapter 27 and verse 1, the prophet speaks of the Lord's severe sword, great and strong. And then in verses 2 and 3, he draws a sharp contrast between the pagans, whom the Lord will slay with that sword, and those who are, on the other hand, the special objects of God's care. And in these verses, God's people are depicted under the image of a vineyard that is watered and kept by God's special providence. And so, let's read those two verses, Isaiah 27, verses 2 and 3 this picture of a vineyard. In that day, sing to her, that is to God's people, a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I keep it night and day. Now before we look at these and other words like them, let us pray now once again for the help of God. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that you are the great God that keeps your vineyard. You are a God that uh, continually is awake, continually is cognizant of the struggles of your people. And we pray that knowing the hearts of all of us here in this room today, that you'd be pleased to water the vineyard, that you'd be pleased to care for us and strengthen us by your holy word. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, much of 2020 has been filled with very distressing news. I don't know of a worse year in my life in terms of the different, year, the different kind of news items that uh, we've been exposed to. Uh, much of the, of, the, of the year, night after night, week after week, month after month, we've been exposed to an unrelenting onslaught of discouraging, distressing news. Going all the way back, and it might seem like it was about a century ago, in January and February, night after night, we were exposed to a political civil war as one party did its utmost to impeach the leader of the other party over the wording of a phone call with the president of Ukraine. But even before these impeachment proceedings were over, we were hit with COVID-19. And I won't go into all the details of the progress of that disease, but as you well know, the official numbers are now uh, well over half a million people that have 
died supposedly from this disease. I say supposedly because I don't know exactly the, uh, the truth of all these numbers. But if anybody thinks that what has happened is just like a typical flu season, I would challenge them to read a lengthy article that I read some time ago that describes what, uh, what took place down uh, New York City, and it's particularly concerning the solemn task that was assigned to those that were collecting the dead in New York City. Day after day, night after night, in the months of April and May, workers were loading COVID-19 corpses into the 100 refrigerated tractor trailers outside of New York City hospitals, stacking 90 corpses in each of these trailers. Dead bodies were coming in so fast that they had to use fork forklifts to get them into these trailers. And the work was so great it required, just to process these dead bodies, it required 800 medical examiners, 350 troops, and 75 federal personnel working 12-hour shifts around the clock to handle all of these bodies. And funeral homes were utterly overwhelmed. One funeral director testified that there were days in which he had to tell 30 to 35 families in, in a single day that he couldn't help them. One cemetery president, he said that in 48 years he had never seen anything like it. The numbers per week had tripled. Crematoriums were so overwhelmed that even burning at maximum capacity 24 hours a day, they had backlogs stretching to a month. There has never been any contemporary precedent, uh, precedent, I think, to this kind of a tragedy that uh, we have seen unfolded in our own lifelines, uh, lifetimes like this. The number of the dead far surpasses the casualties of the battlefields of, of uh, modern wars. So dear brethren, whatever we believe about these numbers, and sometimes there are other death causes besides these COVID uh, numbers, this we can see it's not normal. This has not just been no worse than a common flu. And then as if seeing new cases and death counts every night, as if this wasn't enough, our economy was then shut down to, as you know, flatten the curve. And some 36 billion people lost their jobs, some even say 40 million. Thousands have died of suicide because of their inability to, and, and thousands have also died from the uh, like getting life-saving treatments in hospitals because they were booked up with, with the COVID issues. Homicides have skyrocketed. Life dreams have gone up in a smoke as many shopkeepers have had to close their doors for good. And then piled on top of all of that bad news, for several weeks, perhaps I could even say for several months, night after night, we were exposed to the sickening sight of a of a policeman slowly murdering an unarmed suspect, telling him that he couldn't breathe. And this has been followed by the distressing sight of angry mobs hurling bricks at policemen, smashing patrol cars, destroying and looting stores, burning down hundreds of businesses and cities all around this nation. And some nights it has seemed like the whole country was up in flames. And then come the proposed solutions. Solutions that to many of us seem to be a sure way to make crime and skyrocket and, and fan the flames of anarchy. Now we can understand such things as no chokeholds, better police training, increased accountability, but defund or abolish the police. Is that the solution? Many think it is. 
And as we watch these things, we can't help but ask, well, what's happening to our country? Why are so many of our politicians so willing to kowtow to anarchists? Have we all collectively lost our minds? Free speech is being shut down more and more as Twitter and Facebook and Google are shutting down especially political speech that they think is not uh, in keeping with the rest. And the cancel culture, as you know, it's exploded during recent months. And we are on a fast march, as those of you that keep track of these things in the news, we are on a fast march even now towards socialism. People coming in from to our, that have come into our country from other nations where it existed are horrified at what they see taking place in our own country. Now, as we see and as we hear all these things, it's impossible for not to get us not to get distressed. It's impossible for us not to be bothered by these things. What does all of this mean for the church? Will the church get caught up in this strife? What's going to happen to Christians? Will pastors faithfully declaring God's word get thrown in jail for so-called hate speech? How many believers will lose their jobs on account of their faith? Will some of us lose our lives in this current pandemic? Suddenly we feel that there's no safe ground anywhere on which to stand. Like Eli, we tremble for the ark of God. And if we're honest with ourselves, many of us have to confess that we have struggled with fear during the past year. Now there is a kind of fear that is the essence of godliness. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And of that kind of fear, we can never get too much. There's also a kind of fear that is based on self-distrust. Not so much fear of what's outside, but fear of what's in our own hearts. A fear that's the opposite of pride. And it's right for us to fear the deceptiveness of our own hearts. These kinds of fear are good. But there's also a fear that torments it disheartens. It multiplies difficulties. It refuses available help. And like the fear of man, such fear brings a snare, as, as Proverbs 29 puts it. It begets doubts. It fills the heart with despondency. And like the crazy, lazy man that doesn't want to leave his house and go out and work, it, we make up excuses. Oh, there's a lion out in the streets. I can't go out. This kind of fear grumbles when it should give thanks. It sings dirges when it ought to give praise to God. And in many ways, this kind of fear is the enemy to the usefulness of God's people. It discourages the brethren. And sometimes it grips the church. The church trembles even for her own safety. So dear ones, our theme this morning is to, is, is to address this common fear is to remove this sinful kind of fear. And I can think of no doctrine that's more calculated to encourage a fearful church than this doctrine of God's special providence, his special care of his church. Now, as our opening text shows, the church is God's special vineyard. He waters it continually. He guards it night and day, lest anybody hurt it. And so if anybody wants to destroy the church, if even Satan himself wants to destroy the church, they've got to pick a time that's different than night or day. And what, what time is there that is not night or day? You've got to pick a time that God's not watching. He's watching at night and day. 
And this means there's no time when the church can be destroyed. Now theologians, they rightly speak of the special providence of God. And by this expression, they're not saying that God is less sovereign over the rest of the universe than over the church. That's not what they're saying. What they are saying is that all of God's providential dealings, all of the things that he does and master the universe, they're all channeled to this end with the good of the church in view. And with respect to the safety of individual believers, perhaps no text brings this out better than Jesus' words to his disciples. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. You read those words in Matthew chapter 10. But then not only to individuals are we cared for, like the sparrows are cared for, but collectively the church enjoys the same care. And what God said to Abraham, it applies to all of his posterity. I will bless them that bless you, and I will curse those who, who curse you. And therefore, when Israel suffered under the hand of Pharaoh, God brought judgment, you remember, upon the Egyptian oppressors. Swarms of flies afflicted the Egyptians, but none of them entered Goshen, where God's people were. The cattle in Egypt died, but no cattle that belonged to the Israelites. The firstborn in Egypt died, but, no, but, death, but the angel of death spared the firstborn in the nation or the part of Egypt called Goshen. Maybe you could turn with me just for a moment to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to read just a few verses from Ephesians chapter 1 that also speak to this issue of God's special care of his church. Verse 19, middle of a very long sentence, the Apostle Paul is praying that God would enlighten the eyes of his people, that they would see certain things. And among the things that he prays that they would see and understand, verse 19, is what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church. You see what is said here. The great glorified, risen Lord Jesus that we just sang about a moment ago. This Lord Jesus governs everything in the history of the universe. Everything has been submitted to his feet. He is the one on the throne. And he, he, he has given him to, to supervise everything that takes place. And he is to the head over all things to the church. All things for the good and ultimate blessing of the church. The great Puritan theologian John Owen put it this way, the whole course of affairs in the world is steered by providence in reference to the good of Salem. 
The past 2,000 years have demonstrated the truth of these words. It's not the nations, but the church that God cherishes as the apple of his eye. The greatest and most menacing of the ancient empires, and that empire was the Roman Empire, which was described by Daniel as dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, with huge iron teeth, devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. This terrible beast, this worst of all the empires, stood over the cradle of the New Testament church, and from the very beginning, when she was weakest, tried to destroy the church. Ten terrible waves of persecution came over the church, but the church only grew stronger and stronger. Thousands and thousands perished in the arena by wild beasts and by other means. Unspeakably cruel torments were invented to get Christians to recant their faith. Rome set itself against the church with the only weapons it knew, the rack, the cross, stake, boiling oil, the roasting seat, slowly burning one limb at a time, and it failed to break the will of the church. And if Satan never had the opportunity to stamp out the church, that, that was the time to do it. The church was small then. And even Will Durant, in his great ten-volume history, he writes, he writes from a secular standpoint. He is compelled to recognize the overpowering presence of Christ in this great contest of the early church. This is what this secular writer says. There is no greater drama in human record than the sight of a few Christians scorned or oppressed by a succession of emperors bearing all trials with a fierce tenacity, multiplying quietly, building order while their enemies generated chaos, fighting the sword with the word, brutality with hope, and at last defeating the strongest state that history has known. Caesar and Christ had met in the arena, and Christ had won. For 2,000 years, Satan has tried everything. When persecution didn't work, he tried false doctrine. He tries party strife. He tries the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But the gates of hell have not been able to prevail against the church. For 2,000 years, he has attempted night and day to destroy this precious vineyard, the church. But he who never sleeps, he who never slumbers, he has not allowed it to happen. And while the church might suffer, while it experiences grievous setbacks, it's the special object of God's care. All the wheels of God's providence are engaged in such a manner as to secure the ultimate good of his church. So, dear ones, it is this reality that quiets our fears. Now, having given you the essence of this great doctrine, I've given you a much longer introduction than I usually do, but I've given you just the boiled-down essence of it, this whole idea of God caring for the church especially. What I want to do is work this out under three major headings. We want to look, first of all, at the common occasions of the church's fear, and secondly, of God's assurances to his fearful church, and finally, a couple of special directives for God's fearful people. But first of all, I want to set out before you some common occasions of the church's fear. 
And here I'm going to be quoting scripture passages because there are so many, but that's one of the reasons why the outline was passed out. If you didn't get one, maybe you could, maybe there might be some left over in the back. Uh, but the references are all there in those, those outlines. And the first common occasion for the churches of fear is her humble condition. All too often, the church looks to her own resources for encouragement. And this is a mistake. We're a humble lot. In Luke 12, 32, Jesus says to his little band of disciples, Do not fear, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In Amos 7, verses 2 and 5, when the prophet sees visions of coming judgments, there's the judgment of the locusts eating up everything. There's the judgment of fire. Uh, twice he exclaims, Oh, that Jacob may stand, because he is small. He sees God's people being so little compared to the rest of the, to, to, compared to her enemies. And again and again, God speaks of his people as a remnant. And though the numbers of those who self-identify as Christians supposedly number some 2.3 billion or 29% of the population of the world, the number of real disciples is a lot smaller than that. And as much as Zion lengthens her cords, she is still a garden hedged in, as the Bible talks about her. In her own country, there's a much higher percentage that self-identifies as Christian than in many other places, but it's been a shrinking amount even then. Less than 50% of our country now are members of any church whatsoever, let alone Christian churches. And as much as the church has identified, or people have identified themselves as Christians in our land, Jesus' words are just as true for America as elsewhere. Narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Our core doctrines, our ethical standards, are hated by the majority of the world, even in our own country, this supposedly Christian nation. The outward state of the church is also of humble. Not only our numbers, but our outward condition. Most evangelical churches don't meet in great cathedrals. And in spite of the claims of the health and wealth gospel, what James writes is still true. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor in this world to be rich, not in Cadillacs and, and Mercedes, not, not, but not in those to rich in those things, but be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. And as he gathers his family, therefore, together, the Lord refuses none for admission, and yet generally he pours contempt on princes, he stains the pride of the Hollywood elite. He stains the pride of the, the educators of our country. He takes the beggar. He takes the poor. He takes the despised. He takes the rednecks. And he makes them part of his kingdom and exalts them to sonship with God. So the first occasion we can think about of the church's fear is her humble condition. The second occasion is her apparent weakness. And when she looks at her own gifts and abilities, the church feels very weak. In Isaiah chapter 41, verses 14 and 15, God's people are called a worm. There's a worm theology in the Bible. People hate this worm theology. But this is what he says. God says, fear not, you worm, Jacob, 
you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And I think about this. This is what he says to the worm. Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth, and you shall thresh the mountains and beat them small. Now, there were different types of threshing instruments to separate the grain from the stalk. And one of the types of threshing instruments that was used back in those days, it was constructed of two wooden planks that were joined together. They didn't have plywood back in those days. And under these two planks were fastened sharp stones or pieces of metal. And the farmer would stand on this sledge and he would be pulled over the grain by oxen. But when the Israelites look at their own abilities, they don't feel like a powerful threshing instrument, grinding the grain from the stalks, much less anything that would thresh mountains. God says, you'll thresh the mountains. What does she feel like? She feels like a worm. Now, if you go out and want to start an addition to your house this morning, or tomorrow morning, you would say, well, the first thing I need to do is go out and catch a worm. I'm going to build a house with a worm here. That's not what you do, right? A worm is kind of useless except for catching fish. And yet this is what, a worm flops this way and that way. And this is why God says, don't fear, you worm, Jacob. You feel like the worm. You feel like you're little. You feel like you're like a little worm that can't do anything. You remember what Paul said to the boastful Corinthians? Because they were so proud of their gifts and abilities, he wrote to them, You see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has called, chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, and the things which are not. In other words, the big zeros. To bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. 1 Corinthians 1. He ascended to Lord Jesus. This great Lord has given gifts to his church. But if the Spirit of God is offended, if the Spirit of God withdraws from the church, it is even as when a hungry man dreams, and look, he eats, but he awakens, and his soul is empty. Or as a thirsty man dreams, and he look, he drinks, but he awakes, and indeed he is faint, and his soul still craves, as Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 29. If God's spirit is taken away, we're, we're left to nothing. We're weak. In the hands of God, the life-imparting gospel is the power of God. But as soon as he withdraws, it is foolishness. It's nothing but sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. The weapons of our warfare, dear people, have no mightiness apart from the Spirit of God. Left to ourselves, there's reason to fear. And so this is another occasion for the church's fear. A third occasion is her formidable opposition. When she considers the number, the haughtiness, the cunning, the fierceness, the cruelty of her foes, the church trembles. The church is like, as the Bible depicts her, a turtle dove, surrounded by ravenous birds of prey. It dwells in the midst of enemies, 
And at times whole empires have been arrayed against her. And even today, totalitarian atheistic states persecute the church. Fanatical Islamists come into her villages and mow her down with their machine guns, as they've been doing recently in Nigeria and also there in Myanmar. Even in our own country, the enemies of Christ, they have seized control of the great power levels of our country. They control our universities. They control our media. They're in control of, of the way of the great power machines, you see, of our land. And their insolence is diabolical. They shoot out the lip. They deride pious grief. They even mock the dying agonies of the Lord Jesus. And they ridicule her noblest endeavors. They say, if a fox just goes up, the fox will break down their stone wall, as it's put there in Nehemiah chapter 4. They so despise the doctrine of creation that they don't even allow it on the, a seat at the table for discussion. Case closed. Evolution is settled science. Creation, this is, this, is, doesn't even, this is such a ludicrous idea that we won't even allow it into our discussions. And they treat those that adhere to biblical morality as haters that need to be driven out of society. And Christian professors and employees are, are afraid to speak up. They're afraid that they might lose their jobs in this cancel culture. And many have. And in their fury, the enemies of the church, they're like the raging waves of the sea. This is what the Bible depicts. And this is what we see all around us. And whether they rage or they are quiet, the enemies of the gospel are always cunning. We can't say that they're stupid. Many of them are brilliant thinkers. They're able to use words like sharp weapons, triumphantly impaling the conduct and beliefs of Christians with their witty uh, statements. Satan imparts his own venom and guile to these servants. They lay dark plots. They fabricate false narratives. They twist the words of believers and even the words of the apostles to their own destruction, as we read in 2 Peter chapter 3. And so the formidable opposition of the church causes the church to fear. The fourth occasion of the church's fear is her prolonged trials. The apparent tardiness of her divine head in avenging the wrongs of the church and in vindicating her cause, this, this is a trial to our faith. Why is it you delay, Lord? Sometimes it's the length more than the intensity of the church's trials that is so dispiriting to her. The church easily forgets that the plans of her king stretch from eternity past to eternity future. And forgetting this, the church cries out, O Lord, how long? The phrase that's repeated different places in the Bible. How long, Lord, will this go on? In Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10, for instance, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, they cry out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those that dwell on the earth? Jonathan Edwards, who was so mightily used in the Great Awakening, he ventured to conjecture that he had seen the dawn of the latter-day glory. At one point when he was seeing what was taking place, 
in Northampton and other places in New England. And yet Edwards lived a little longer. And he lived long enough to see the folly and heresy and fanaticism and persecution that, that began to mar in a few short years a great revival. And even this great revivalist was driven out of his own church. And so it's the prolonged trials that are especially difficult and cause the church to fear. Well, now having considered some common occasions of the church's fear, I want you to listen this morning to some common, to do some God's assurances to his fearful church. And what God says to Zion is unmistakably clear. Fear not and do not be dismayed. Isaiah 41.10. But God doesn't just say don't be afraid. And by the way, that's about 75 times, that little commandment, do not fear. And God says this 75 times. We better pay attention. When he repeats himself. He means for us to pay attention. But he doesn't just say don't be afraid. He gives us reasons, good reasons for this encouragement. So what I want to do is press on to your, your minds this morning two such reasons. They're God's presence and God's help. And in Albany, we preached another sermon that dealt with God's covenant. But the first such assurance is God's presence. And turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 43. In a moment, we will read from this wonderful chapter. The essence of God's comfort in the first part of the chapter is expressed in the words, Do not fear, for I and with you. Verse 5. That's, boil it all down. It's in that statement there in verse 5. Do not fear, because I am with you. These words are full of assurance. These words are full of comfort to God's people. They point to God's omnipresence. I am with you. Wherever the church goes, God goes. He goes with the church down into the Red Sea. He is with his people in all of her wilderness wanderness, wanderings. He is with the church in a fiery pillar of cloud at night and a pillar of cloud in the day. He goes then with his people through the Jordan. He goes with them as they enter the promised land. He's with his people as they conquer the Canaanites. He's with Jeremiah in the dungeon of Malchiah, where he's let down into a pit where there's no water and he sinks into the mire. He's with Jeremiah there. He's with Daniel in the dine's den. He's with the three young Hebrews in the burning fiery furnace. I'm with you, he says. When the Jews gnashed their teeth at Stephen, Jesus was with Stephen. And so being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. All throughout the Bible, we have many instances that prove this point. I am with you. And here in this chapter, we have these words of comfort that have been a blessing to God's people through every age. And I want to read beginning with verse 1. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, or do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
and through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I, the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Verse 5. Fear not, for, and hear it again, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. Repeatedly in this precious passage is what we call the Emmanuel principle. The name Emmanuel means God is with us. In verse 2, our trials are depicted under the figure of going through deep waters and even a fiery furnace. And repeatedly, we are assured that even in the very worst of trials, God is with us. Therefore, both in verse 1 and verse 5, he says, do not fear. In his commentary on Isaiah, the great reformer John Calvin writes this. When Isaiah frequently repeats this exhortation, that is, do not fear, we ought not to look upon it as superfluous. For we know and feel how prone we are by nature to distrust. Scarcely any words can express the greatness of the alarm by which the church was at that time shaken. As soon as we begin to call into question the promises of God, our minds are distracted by various thoughts. We are alarmed and continually tormented by the greatness and diversity of the dangers, till at length we are stupefied and have no perception of the grace of God. You see what he's saying? All these things happen to us, all these trials. Our eyes get off of God, and all we can think about is our troubles and our threats. Accordingly, before despair sees our hearts, it is not without good reason, Calvin goes on to say, that he so frequently repeats, I am with you, in order that he may either destroy altogether or partially mitigate the fear which is seated in our hearts. Night after night, as we have turned on the news, there are distressing developments that, as Calvin puts it, distract our mind that fill our hearts with alarm, that torment us with fear. With some of you, perhaps, it's the fear, and maybe it's not so intense now, the fear of COVID-19. With other, the fear of an economic collapse. And I have to confess that the things that have tormented me and distressed me the most are not so much those things, but the pervasive inclination, pervasive evidences that there are, that we are living in a land and a country, that it is an open a rebellion against God. That's the thing that really worries me. That's the thing that troubles me the most. I tend to fear what's going on now with this election and what's taking place and and the, the policies that are being implemented, people that have fled from totalitarian states, they're alarmed as they see what's beginning to take place. And it's right and it's good that we put in place measures to root out every vestige of racism and brutality among the police. A year ago, who would have thought that there would be such a loud cry for the abolition of the police? Who would ever imagine that? Who would have thought that we would actually have our major network newscasters defending rioters 
and defending burning down cities. Who would have ever thought this would be defended? Who would have ever thought that we would be giving serious consideration to giving into the madness of mobs? The ignorance is astonishing. And in the name of the Black Lives, Lives Matter movement, they're desecrating monuments to African-American soldiers that fought for the North, destroying statues of people that sought to abolish slavery, even Abraham Lincoln. And yet somehow, we're supposed to give in to all this madness. And this is the kind of thing that bothers me. And never in my life have I seen such despicable pandering to the mobs as I've seen to the last year, year and a half. But here is my comfort, dear people. God says to me, he says to you, do not fear, because I am with you. The church is like the disciples in a little fishing boat. Storms of unbelief, the ungodliness of rage, they beat against our little bark. The wrath of Satan threatens to swallow us up with his angry waves. But as long as Christ is in the vessel, we can smile at the storm, as the little song puts it. We can be assured that the church will outride the storms of time and eternity. Turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 1. Toward the end of the first century, all but one of the apostles had been martyred for the faith. Think of it, all 12, except one. And then that one apostle, John, who was banished to a barren rock called Patmos, writing to a suffering church as a brother and companion in tribulation. He's not writing about tribulations way off in the distance. He's writing about present-day tribulations. He says this, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And then what do we read of this one that appears to him in such majesty, the Alpha and the Omega, first and the last, verse 12. And then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were like white, like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. And his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. In his right hand were seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as, as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, here's one of the 75 times, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and who is dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades of death. Dear brethren, I dare say that whatever discouragements have come upon the church as of late, it hardly compares to what the early church was going through when John wrote these words. 
And let's remember, as he's writing this, this is the Lord's Day. He speaks about, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And how do you know this was the Lord's Day? Maybe there was a rock and he scratched out the days of the month, the days of the week. He figured out that this is again the first day of the week. And what would he be given on that day, the Lord's Day, to be with God's people once again? He's all alone. But Jesus shows him afresh that he is among the golden cat he is among the golden candlesticks, the church. His dear church. He is near that church, in the midst of his church. And the church is going through a fiery trial at that time. But the glorious Son of God is there. And his burning feet is brass like judgment. This isn't against the church, but against the church's enemies. The glorious Son of God is with them. He says to his trembling church, do not be afraid. I'm with you. Well, this is the first assurance that he gives to his fearful church. It is God's presence. God is with us. He's with us to hear our cries, protect, support, and deliver us. But there's one more assurance that I want to speak about today. It is the, the assurance of God's help. In every age, church can sing, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in time of trouble. Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 41. God is not with us merely to speak comforting words to us. It's comforting when God's people comfort each other in that way. But he's not merely, merely able to speak nice, comforting words. All the plenitude of his power, he is with us in order to help us, to uphold us, to strengthen us. And the same omnipotence that holds the earth in its orbit at just the right distance from the sun. That same omnipotence by which all the worlds travel, as it has been put by one writer, wheeling unshaken through immensity. That same omnipotence is with us, not to destroy us, but to help us. Look what he says in Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. We had time, we would also see how he says essentially the same thing in chapter 51, verses 12 to 13. But listen to what he says in chapter 40, beginning with verse 28. This is after the great display of God's omnipotence, the God who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and so on. This is what he says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. The power of the enemy of God is, uh, God's people is too strong for us. And we're no match against the people that are against us. We don't feel like we, we're, we're, we're ready. Meet that. We feel like we're outnumbered, outwitted. When we feel that that we are 
totally powerless to defend ourselves. Let us remember, dear people, that our omnipotent God is more powerful than all the powers on earth. And all of our efforts, you see, uh, and all of the efforts of the God's people to protect themselves, that's not what they depend upon. And all the efforts of the enemies of God's people that they are to weaken God's people, these will be frustrated by God. The Roman emperors, they, they made the whole earth tremble. They subdued one nation after another under them. They employed all their power against the poor, naked, defenseless church to destroy it. But in the end, it wasn't the church that gave way. In the end, it was the Roman emperor, the Roman empire that was conquered. And God says to his poor, weak church, chapter 54 and verse 17, no weapon formed against you shall prevail. And this is just as true for us today as it was in the ancient Judah, as it was in the days of the Caesars. God delights in using those that are weak. He delights in using those that are contemptible in the eyes of the world to confound the mighty. He uses Gideon's 300 men, you remember, with their pitchers and lamps to defeat the huge hosts of the Midianites. And Dumoulin, a servant of Christ, hid from these enemies in a brick oven during a bloody Parisian massacre. What did God do to defend this faithful servant of his from being found by the authorities and, and killed? He hid inside of one of these big ovens. There were ovens that were you know what they're like, big brick ovens. And to protect him, God sent a little spider. The spider wove a little web right in front of the, on the face of that oven. And so the soldiers, they, they could see, well, nobody would go in that oven. There's, this, there's a web right there. How could they get in there without disturbing this web? God sent that little instrument to defend his faithful servant. And it's often God's way to help us when we are at our wit's end, just in the nick of time. And his help is timed to the minute. The angel of the Lord, he calls to Abraham, and he shows him another sacrifice besides the one that he had put on the altar, his own son. And he does so just as his hand is lifted up, ready to bring it down to slay his son in obedience to the father's word. Right in the nick of time, God saves Isaac, at just the right moment, Paul's nephew overhears a plot against Paul's life. The book of Esther, it's full of perfectly timed events. King Ahasuerus' sleepless night, reading of the, uh, the records of the kingdom to this sleepless king, and in particular the record of Mordecai's unrewarded deliverance. Esther's delayed feast. Haman's misunderstood plea for his life. Time after time, the whole book is full of these perfectly timed events. So, dear ones, our God is a very present help in time of trouble. He's with us to help us. And so here are two assurances then to God's fearful church, God's presence and God's help. And if I had turned... If I had time, I'd preach a whole other sermon about the third help, which is God's covenant. But I want to just close with a couple directives for God's fearful people. The first and the most basic directive is that we should strengthen our hearts with the word of God in these days. 
Assurances of God's presence, assurances of God's help, they're scattered through the whole Bible. I've just given you a sample. The Bible is rich with these assurances. And when we fail to take advantage of these assurances, we rob ourselves of some of the most precious things that God has given us to comfort us, to encourage us. And especially in times of trials, we should be driven to the Bible. The Psalms and many of the sacred writings, they are best studied in days of darkness and trial and bereavement. There are verses that never meant anything to you for, for years until you had a certain trial. And then you read that verse again. You know by experience how that verse then was so significant. There are precious promises also in the New Testament that never lose their value no matter how often we use them. How could we ever wear Romans 8.28 out? How would we ever get, get, get rid of that one and say, well, that's no use anymore. I've tried it a number of times and it's kind of getting old and stale. How, well, one of us would think that way. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, and to those who are called according to his purpose. Sometimes the providences of God are dark. Our eyes are dim. We can't see what's out there. We don't have night vision like our soldiers do. It's just dark. We don't know what to make of these things. But as the Puritan Thomas Watson writes, when we cannot unriddle providence, let us believe that it will work together for the good of the elect. The wheels in a clock seem to move contrary one to another. This is back in the days when they didn't have digital clocks. They had wheels and gears. And they seem to be running against each other, he says. And yet they help forward the motion of the clock. And so the providences of God seem to be cross wheels. But for all that, they shall carry on the good of the elect. Affliction in itself is not joyous, but grievous. But the Lord turns it to the good of the saints. Poverty shall starve out their sins, and affliction shall prepare them for a kingdom. What wonderful words. As he seeks to apply that wonderful text, Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. And then one final word by way of practical directive. Let us not only go to the word, but let's also go to prayer. Mistake, keep it very basic here. We forget the most basic things when we go through trials. And when do strong cries and tears ascend to God apart from our times that are pressed down with the awful weight of sorrow, the awful weight of trouble? That's when we're broken. That's when we most likely are get earnest in our prayers. William Plumer puts it this way, at prayer in the whale's belly, Jonah is safer and nearer deliverance than when he's asleep on a ship. Isn't that an interesting thought? He's asleep on the ship. He thinks there's no danger. He's full of sleep. He was really in danger at that point. But when he's in the whale's belly, when he's praying, he's safe. And so, at these kind of times, it's right that we inquire, wherefore, O Lord, do you contend with us? There's always a cause. There's always a needs be for our afflictions. And maybe your affliction, whatever it might be, or our corporate afflictions as a church and as a nation, 
It might be that you would, if it was for, for this main purpose, that you'd start getting earnest in your prayer life. And I, I thank God that when I spoke with Pastor Nichols, he has been blessed by your prayers, by the way. He's encouraged by the prayer meetings as, as you meet together over the phone to pray concerning God's kingdom. But these issues, they come upon us, you see, to make us more earnest in our prayers, make us more diligent with our prayers. And maybe perhaps your trial has come on you in order that God might show himself mighty to those that seek him and conscious of their weakness. When Zerah the Ethiopian came out against Judah, and he came with a million-man army, Asa cried out to the Lord, and this is what he said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or whether with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you, and in your name we go out against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. These are comforting words. In John Speed's History of England, Interestingly, it was published in 1611, the same year that the King James Version was published, this History of England. He, he tells us that when Richard I besieged a castle with his army, the people inside the castle, they offered to surrender if he would just save their lives. But he refused. He threatened to hang all of them. So a man named Arabalaster he set an arrow in his bow. And first he prayed before he let it fly that God would direct his shot and deliver the innocent from oppression. And that arrow struck the king himself. He died and the people were delivered. But it wasn't just the arrow. It was the prayer that went with that arrow that God used to bring deliverance. And so let's not only read God's word, treasure up those passages that are are especially helpful in times of trial, but let us also be diligent with our prayers. And God also brings such widespread afflictions upon a nation that the even unconverted people, they would come to the word, to come to prayer. So if you're here today, I don't know all of your hearts, but if you're not a true believer, you've, you've stiff-armed God's word. You've, you've not prayed for help and for salvation. Maybe God is speaking to you so that you would get in earnest with reading the Bible, finding out what God says, and that you would get in earnest with seeking God's face in prayer for the salvation of your soul. Let's pray.